The global north's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the global south. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow the one recipe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, fellow sapiens. I'm Chip Gawel. I'm Esteban Gomez. I'm Jen Shannon. I'm Aura. And I'm Yuli. And we are a new generation of anthropologists and archaeologists who love to investigate what makes us human. Over the years, we've gone to space to find out whether it's a human place. Three, two, one, and liftoff. Lift off. And we've wondered why some people eat bugs. It's the black ants that when they die, they actually release citric acid. And others don't. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> and we've learned how reconnecting with ancestors, from uncovering sunken slave ships to identifying hidden burial grounds, are human acts of reclamation. That was according to the wishes of the descendant community. We are Sapiens, a podcast for everything human. And we can't wait to answer your questions about the human experience. Please subscribe now, wherever you're listening to this show, and check us out at sapiens.org. In August 1947, after the British finally left India after centuries of rule, the subcontinent was partitioned into two independent nation-states, a Hindu-majority India and a Muslim-majority Pakistan. With their futures uncertain, literally overnight, millions of Muslims migrated to West and East Pakistan, which is now called Bangladesh, while millions of Hindus and Sikhs migrated to what is now called India. This moment of decolonization became inextricably linked with collective trauma. This event, known as the Partition, is one of the largest migrations in human history. In this violent shuffle, hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives. Historians and anthropologists of South Asia have done incredible work around the critical event of Partition and the silences that continue to shape its telling and retelling. But apart from world-altering violence, Partition left lasting cultural impacts on culinary practices, not just in India, but in geographies far beyond impacts that can be felt today, even in 2022. My guest today will help us see how partition was not just a one-time event that had an identifiable beginning and end. Rather, it's an event that is not temporally or historically bound. And it is an event that had all kinds of reverberations into people's everyday lives and food practices. One of my very special guests today is my grand-aunt, Jiti Nani. Nani means grandmother in Hindi. Born to a Sikh landowner father, Jiti Nani was just 15 years old in 1947, 
but she's able to describe how her life was transformed overnight from one of luxurious living to life as a refugee. This episode is sprinkled with her memories of pre- and post-partition life and food. We didn't have any luxurious food those days. No, our mindset was like that, that we have come as refugees. Mm. This is Bad Table Manners, a show that seeks to push the boundaries of food reporting and narrative in South Asia. And I'm your host, Meher Varma. Along with Jiti Nani, the renowned food journalist Anuti Vishal also provided me with some great historical context that helped me frame the story. In terms of food, what it did really to the culinary cultures of India was with the displacement of populations, the food culture also got displaced. And I'll also have an in-depth conversation with the London-based food writer and editor Jonathan Nunn about the ripple effects of partition on the food culture of London, particularly its celebrated Indian cuisine. Jonathan helps us to see how flows of migration shape the city and continue to impact how Indian food today is understood in the metropoles. Obviously, Indian food existed in London before partition happened. But I think partition changed a huge amount in terms of the British conception of Indian food. Anuthi has written about the impact of partition on Delhi's food culture. Like so many other historical examples, the struggle and violence that marked partition also bred creativity, bringing new and exciting flavors to Delhi. But before we can understand how partition and new flows of refugees reshaped the city, Anuthi tells me about another important historical event that changed Delhi. The replacement of Shahajanabad, which is today known as Old Delhi, the capital of the erstwhile Mughal Empire, with Calcutta, which became the capital of the British Empire in 1857. Despite the emergence and entrenchment of a new empire, Delhi remained a place of culinary excellence, known for its Mughlai cuisine that, as she describes, was a composite food culture that developed over two and a half centuries. It combined the food of the Muslim aristocrats, the Kayas and scribe communities, and Banyas and Khatris who owned businesses and banks. I asked Anuthi to expand on the tastes that were lost during partition. She suggests that what was lost was not just a dish or two, or just a certain way of cooking, but a kind of poetry that infused these courtly culinary practices. This got me to do my own archival research and look at how recipes were recorded in Mughal India. I found some incredible passages in Aini Akbari, which is a detailed account of King Akbar's court. I read about how King Akbar had 400 cooks, some of who came from Persia. He ate in gold, silver and stone dishes, and his food was never served to him directly without being taste tested at least hundreds of times. His palace chickens were fed by hand with pellets flavoured with saffron and rose water, and then massaged with musk oil and sandalwood. As I read this, I wish that in my next life, I may be reborn as one of King Akbar's chickens. But after partition, Mughlai cuisine experienced a vanishing, as Anuthi puts it. This erasure coincided with the emergence of a dominant Punjabi cuisine, characterized by newer, bolder, tomato-laden flavours from Western Punjab. 
It was this tandoori cuisine that would become the global standard bearer for Indian food around the world. The birth of the cliched but beloved chicken tikka masala begins here, in this context of violence. We had the Punjabi immigrants coming in and taking place, really, of the old Muslim elite. And they had their own cultural mores. They were also people who had suffered a lot, who had been completely displaced. So many of them arrived with nothing but, you know, some memories of their food and, you know, perhaps carrying very basic utensils, etc. And the idea of the tandoor came in really with them in a mass way. People who really had nothing were obviously keen to establish new businesses. And one of these was the food business, the restaurant business. We all know, you know, about how butter chicken and chicken tikka became really popular with Moti Mehal in Darya Ganj. This was a new innovation, really, because tandoor was used only for rotis or bread to bake bread in. But here there were these restauranteurs with a great spirit of enterprise with nothing to lose, wanting to do newer things and, you know, forced to do newer things to make money. They just started using it to grill meats in. And then later when they found that this was too dry and there was no refrigeration, the tandoor meat was getting spoiled, they came up with a very simple, really, gravy of tomatoes and butter, etc., which was not the flavor profile preferred by the old elite, the old Muslim elite of Delhi. This was a flavor profile which was quite simple really, which was more in sync with a newer lot of people who wanted something quick, who wanted something filling because their focus was not so much looking at food as an indulgence, but food as sustenance. And therefore, you know, we got this whole style of tandoori food, which is perhaps now the best known Indian food globally. It was almost like the first example of fast food in this new emerging metropolis. I was curious how food practices changed for non-kings and queens as well. I asked Jiti Nani what her culinary memories of pre-partition life were like. How did people like her eat? What did their dining table look like? Here are a few anecdotes from our conversation that revealed the communal spirit of mealtimes which would be followed by a delightful group siesta. So in the thali, there would be sabzis, roti. Roti. There used to be one sweet dish. It was winter time, so we used to have a lot of this carrot halwa. Mm. And uh, sometimes nungi ki dal ka halwa, one kutori used to be for the sweet. And three kutoris, and then if we had rice, mm. it would be passed on. And what else? And everybody sat at the table. Yeah. And for long, t- how long would lunch be? Like quite lengthy or? Uh, no, it used to be for an hour maximum. It's quite long, okay. Also what we used to go after lunch, because we used to go to sleep. And, <laughs> and you know, when we got up, this was in summertime, because it was very hot there. In Jitinani's anecdotes, something that struck me was that there was no mention of her or of other women going into the kitchen. Pre-partition, Anuthi tells me, public eating establishments were male-dominated spaces. And even within the household, Jitinani describes how the kitchen was basically out of bounds for her. 
in the house then nobody nani and you never stepped into the kitchen no mm. not there we weren't allowed oh it was a huge big house and there was a courtyard like from here to bharat's place that's where our kitchen used to be mm. if we just ran and asked what is cooking because you come back from the boarding school then you hungry only thinking of home food mm. and he used to be watching like an eagle there your father no my uncle my father's elder brother what are you doing run back you're not allowed to go there a few days later after jithinani told me this i began to think that maybe the kitchen was kept away from women like her because it was a place where mixing mixing of all kinds that she and other women had to be protected from happened i'm glad i probed this because my inkling wasn't just confirmed my eyes were also open to some of the actual going ons that were far beyond what i had imagined so my uncle got a governess for him from england and also a bengali cook those days bengali cooks were known to be the best cooks mm. and it so happened that she got involved with the cook and what she used to do she used to put the baby to sleep mani and give a little bit of opium and then they found out and checked both of them out but by the time he was about 6 7 you started showing signs that is not normal it honestly took me a while to get over this anecdote and my mind was busy with all the other illicit things that may have taken place in the indian kitchens of this time but thankfully anuthi refocused me telling me about the other changes that happened pre and post partition pre partition she said the cook enjoyed significant power in the household but post partition the cook also found himself in a new position the cook was always gendered male in these accounts and he went from being someone highly paid and respected to just another employee but anuthi also brought up an excellent point while there's often nostalgia for the way things were Partition also signaled the collapse of a feudal order. In place of highly hierarchical kitchens came restaurants, public dining spaces, and street food that were much more accessible and welcoming to ordinary people and to women. We can't really look at things in black and white because there is a lot of nostalgia for this very nuanced, very old style, very measured and aristocratic way of life. It was also a feudal order which collapsed. and we had new energy coming in new enterprise coming in people who really because they had no means they had to make it in the food business which many of them took and you know we had new dishes which now delhi is associated with we already spoke about tandoori food but there was also things like pindi chana which became the street food of delhi which is available everywhere now in chole bhature you know a dish which we really associate so much with delhi as also you know this new style of restaurants like quality or united coffee house which served a mix of indian and british food for the slightly more uh, upper classes or the middle classes again who were the newer moneyed people so it was you know just this whole churn happening and which is why this very pivotal moment really in indian history but also in indian culinary history I was curious to know more about how becoming a refugee transformed the lives of millions of people. 
Jiti Nani tells me a little bit about how her experience of everyday food changed after her family crossed the border. What we hear essentially is that even for a privileged land-owning family like hers, life became about survival. After partition, my father lost a lot of He came with 100,000 people, walked. And he was quite prepared with guns and all. But when they reached the border, then, uh, of course, he had nothing. So they had gone to Karnal. But all the refugees that were coming to Karnal, because my father was there, that they would land up there with whatever they had. And they used to make a big, big dish of dalia. Okay. Porridge, milk, porridge, and we used to get shakkar. Mm. That was our Distributed. breakfast. Okay. Yeah, you know, everybody mm. had, because there were so many people, there mm. was hardly any. Till by and by, then, you know, my father was allocated with 250 acres or 300 But acres. how did he feed all these people? Three meals a day? He did. How? Everybody was welcome. Everybody was... I now want to turn to one of Partition's lesser-known effects. While much has been written about how Partition altered the history and politics of South Asia forever, it also left an indelible imprint on the life and cuisine of the metropole, in this case, the city of London. Jonathan Nunn is the creator of Vittles, a food newsletter that I consider groundbreaking for its dedication to the vernacular and the hyperlocal. Jonathan helps us understand how the legacy of partition continues to shape British notions of Indian food. Quite recently, he wrote a powerful piece about London titled Blurred Lines, which historicizes the global food mix for which the first world city is often credited and celebrated. Unsurprisingly, India's partition and the displacement of populations, which Anuthi and I also talked about, play a significant role in London's preeminent place on the global food scene. Jonathan makes a case for what he calls a second London, a London that centers its immigrant history rather than only its imperial glory. In our conversation, I asked Jonathan to help me look back at the complexities of empire. For example, the unintended consequences of empire's decline that includes flows of migration from its former colonies, which have contributed in immeasurable ways to London's culinary diversity and its celebrated global cuisine. My argument is, it's not a particularly novel argument, is that the city gained a new identity with the influx of people from the former empire which came in. And so the blurred lines of the essay title are looking at the lines which the British Empire kind of laid down in its former colonies to make divisions and how those lines have affected the immigration that came into the capital. What were the ripple effects of this violence? And what did it do to how Londoners understood and continue to understand Indian food? I asked him. Obviously, Indian food existed in London before partition happened. But I think partition changed a huge amount in terms of the British conception of Indian food. So kind of in the immediate wake of partition, you had the British Nationality Act in 1948, which allowed, kind of with almost no restrictions, immigration from former British colonies. So you had a huge amount of immigration from Punjab, 
and a lot of them were sort of newly created Pakistani Punjabis. And you also had immigration from what was then East Pakistan. Between 1948 and sort of 71, sort of the British conception of Indian food was very much Punjabi food. Even more specifically than that, it was Muslim um, Punjabi food. It was it was food created by people who are coming from the newly formed Pakistan. I don't think this changed London immediately, because I think a lot of the first wave of immigration was actually coming to industrial heartlands. But then as the industrialization happened, there was a lot more immigration to London and a bigger shift from going into uh, manufacturing to the idea that you could open a restaurant and moving into catering. You had a lot of restaurants opening, but they were still mainly catering to a kind of British elite, probably many of whom were involved in the British Empire and who had had food in India um, and kind of wanted somewhere to get it back home. With the war in Bangladesh, you had a huge amount of Bengali immigration over here, and that was kind of like the democratization of Indian food. The restaurants they started weren't Bengali restaurants. It was kind of a take on like the very rich Punjabi food which had already existed in London. It was kind of flattened into this litany of dishes which were mainly arranged in terms of spice to make it very easy for British people to understand. And, and the food was very much geared towards white British people who may have not had any knowledge of Indian food. It was heavily meat-based, spicy, but the spiciness could be kind of altered from dish to dish. It was not at all recognisably Bengali. There was, there was almost no river fish, very uh, little use of ferments. To be honest, that type of food just wouldn't have made any money for anyone at the time. I think you can see, looking back, that our entire conception of Indian food was actually very much a legacy of partition and, and the legacy of dividing these two states, which have then gone to have this huge effect on the London restaurant scene. From Jonathan's response, I begin to understand that changes to Indian food happen gradually, over time and across space. Partition was a long, rather than one-time event, and it produced gradual but discernible shifts in the heart of empire as well. In London, where some of Partition's refugees had arrived, Indian food started to become mainstream. One of the reasons why Indian food, or the English imagination of Indian food, was considered palatable was because it was adapted to fit the exact measured amount of exoticism that the British palate desired. The thing about the British is that they like a certain amount of exoticism, but sort of don't go too far. At that time, the British palate was extremely limited, sort of more so than it had ever been, because rationing had got everyone used to a very kind of bland vision of what British food actually is. You had Indian food come along and it was exciting. A lot of the more successful restaurants kind of realised that what British people kind of wanted was, yeah, a performance. And there's theatricality of, of the tandoor and of kind of like a procession of dishes Food that is spicy, but not too spicy. 
or food which is different but not too different. It allowed for certain Indian dishes to be successful, but it made other sort of regional dishes kind of impossible to actually put on menus. So what you end up happening is this kind of flattening of Indian cuisine into basically like it's curries or grills. And that's pretty much everything. Today, Indian food in Britain consists not just of your seven-pound chicken tikka masala, there it is again, but of high-end Michelin-starred food that capitalizes on nostalgic colonial fare. A number of successful high-end Indian restaurants in London hark back to this colonial fantasy of conquest to sell cosmopolitan Indian food. Gymkhana London, for example, is a restaurant that features hunting-inspired art on the wall and game samosas on the menu. But these dishes are not new inventions. They are reinventions of classic colonial dishes that filtered into Indian aristocratic kitchens as well. Jitinani, for example, recollected the taste of partridge pickles with ease. Do they serve meat? Do they cook meat? Yes, yes. So what kind of meat? And uh, they used to go, for, my father and his brothers, they used to go for shikar shooting. They used to bring back deers. They used to bring back... But here, you know, the partridges, all those were cooked and the jungly murgi. Did you eat that? Did you eat the deer? We used to, we used to, we love it. They also used to make pickles from these. Uh, oh. And the pickles were delicious. I asked Jonathan what he makes of the re-emergence of this neo-colonial British Raj aesthetic in 2022. It's complex and I tried to write about this and I kind of stopped midway through because I, I hadn't quite got my thoughts together on it. I think if it was white English restaurateurs opening these kind of Raj cosplay restaurants, it would be very, very easy to kind of dismiss them as quite obviously sort of reactionary and racist portrayal of Indian food. I think where things are a little complicated is that, one, these restaurateurs are actually Indian. So for those who don't know London, Gymkhana is in a district called Mayfair, right on the border of St. James. And this is basically the richest area of London. But it's not just rich in money. St. James is kind of clubland. And during the glory days of the British Empire, Basically, the empire was being informally ruled in St. James, in these private members' clubs, by men who would do all their deals behind these closed walls, rather than, say, in Parliament, or what you'd like consider to normally be the kind of inner circle of power. So there's something already interesting about a place like Gymkhana opening in that location by an Indian family. It's difficult to just say simplistically that, like, yes, we can write this off. I wonder if the fact of Indian ownership does enough to disrupt the coloniality of this narrative. Jonathan and I discuss the possibilities for what a decolonized Indian restaurant in London might actually look like and where it could be found. Not in the city's most expensive real estate, clearly. Personally, I don't think it is. I think all you're doing is reproducing exactly the same structures, this time with Indian ownership rather than British ownership. 
I kind of see it as analogous to kind of what happens in uh, tea plantations in Darjeeling, where you had plantations set up by the British producing an exploitative system of farming. And now those plantations are kind of rebranded with Indian ownership, but the conditions are still materially exactly the same. So Dishoom, which is uh, a sort of much more, it's a much bigger chain. With their first restaurant, they did get criticised for playing on Raj themes. And for their third restaurant, actually, in King's Cross, they got criticised again. But I think what people didn't notice is that they, there was actually an anti-colonial narrative throughout the restaurant. A lot of the restaurant was branded with protest slogans taken from 1940s for Indian independence and a lot of the photos and sort of fittings in the room kind of reference that time and the struggle for independence. There is actually this narrative in the dining room itself. I I mean, I think the trouble is that lots of people just wouldn't notice that. And again, kind of who is it in service to? Is it really a radical act to do that while kind of upholding the same kind of structures that I think the more interesting kind of counter-narrative in London Indian food is the culture being produced on the margins. And and by the margins, I mean cultural margins, but also physically a lot of the most interesting stuff is being produced on the edges of London in the neighbourhoods which working-class Indians settled in and in the restaurants which are mainly producing food for those communities. I would say that that, that is a more interesting space. The flattening of Indian food to which Jonathan points me to gets me thinking about whether it's possible for cultural, diverse and unfamiliar Indian cuisines, say regional cuisines beyond Punjabi tandoori food, to thrive in a place like London, without them being either fast food substitutes like the ubiquitous tandoori carryout or Michelin-starred, out-of-reach elite experiences. I think it definitely can. And I mean, I guess my my point is not so much that these restaurants in central London are uninteresting or they're not actually producing anything of cultural value. I do think, though, that a lot of it is about, well, who is this for? And a lot of those restaurants in central London flattening the cuisine in actually a similar way to how the cuisines were flattened is kind of refracted through the lens of things like small plates. There are kind of certain dishes you can get away with and certain dishes you can't. Sometimes it produces interesting things. I think a lot of the time it produces stuff which I think is culturally stale. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that it is actually incredibly difficult to operate a restaurant in central London. Um, The overheads are absolutely massive. And I think what this actually leads to is a lot of very safe, unimaginative cooking, things which they know will sell. Among the London foodies of today, Jonathan and I note a new trend as well. Rather than the just so much exoticism of yesterday, today's eaters want to be able to eat the most quote-unquote authentic cuisine that they can. We're talking about the ones who order the items on the menu with three chilies next to them, despite waitress warnings. Exhibiting cultural capital through performed spice tolerance is definitely something I've witnessed a lot. But at the same time, there's indeed a limit to what people are willing to eat when it comes to South Asian food. The fact that it has come to signify cultural capital is a pretty new phenomenon. 
and this cultural fact is shaped by the realities of partition, which determined which South Asian immigrant cuisines were considered cuisines and which were merely considered sustenance for working class communities. The truth is, is that there has been, I don't think, a single review of a Bangladeshi or Bengali restaurant in London in the last sort of 10 to 20 years, which is kind of a shocking thing, considering there's certainly been the same in in places like New York and Los Angeles, where the community is much, much smaller. There's kind of like a general, almost like an ignorance of the cuisines which actually make up London and actually have a huge amount of context within London's history. This is one of the many reasons why I'm so grateful for new food media like the newsletter Vittles that Jonathan runs. Focusing on the event of partition helps us to see how cities like Delhi and London have both been shaped by diverse food communities, giving them the kind of cosmopolitan imprint that continues to draw people to them. As we have seen, partition wasn't just about 1947, or just about the line between India and Pakistan, but about shifting geographies, life worlds, and inequalities across empire. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode and this segment of Bad Table Manners, which explored how food crosses borders, communities and lives, while remaining central to how we experience and remember our histories. If you enjoyed this exploration, you'll probably also enjoy my upcoming conversations with Tibetan refugees who recreate their imagined homeland through food, as well as my episode on how everyday Indian ingredients like turmeric and ashwagandha became annoyingly hip. This episode is possible because of all the people who work behind the scenes. I'd like to thank my producer, Jennifer O'Neill, audio editor, Evan Lindsay, researchers, Julia Fine and Carolyn Crosby, and intern, Kai Stone. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder, Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective executive producer, Celine Glacier, sound engineer, Max Kotelchuk, associate producer, Quentin Lebeau, and sound intern, Simon Leibendar. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about Bad Table Manners at whetstoneradio.com.